You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Part of the problem is that bad password hygiene sort of thing, that, that reuse of credentials is bad. And it's something that uh, individually, I think we should be taking steps to try and make sure we're not doing Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Matthew Gracie McMinn, he's from Natasia. And we're talking about security issues with streaming services. So stick around for that. All right, Joe, before we jump into our stories here, we've got a little quick follow-up here. You want to bring us up to date on that? Yeah, I do, Dave. Back in episode uh, 151, we had a story that Jason sent in about uh, some scammers trying to get Liz to send a bracelet, if if our listeners go back and listen mm. to that. Uh, and Jason yep. wrote us with a little bit of follow-up on that. And he says, guys, hmm. thanks for covering this. I wanted to share my thoughts since I didn't in the first email and give a brief follow-up to the story as well. He says, this kind of reminds me of the Craigslist scams of the early 2000s and 2010s. Back then, scammers didn't use PayPal, but they would send fake cashier's checks to the victims. The victim would then send the scammer the goods. The check would then come Mm. back as fake, and the victim would be out the money, out any other fees, and the goods. I feel like this scam is an evolution of that, which is probably a good observation. It probably Mm -hmm. is. Here's a follow-up to Liz's story. Either the same guy or a couple of other guys tried this again with Liz after she reposted the bracelet. Liz caught on very quickly this time, which is interesting because she's been exposed to it, right? So now she's kind of been inoculated, so she knows (laughs) knows that this is a scam. She caught on quickly this time and the second and third times and ended the conversations very quickly. She unlisted the bracelet since then. So I don't know how she's Hmm. going to sell the bracelet or if she's going to sell the bracelet. But the the good news is she's not going to get scammed out of this. But these guys are not just going to give up either. That's the bad news. No, and it it seems pretty consistent and relentless on on a lot of these uh, social media platforms. There are folks just waiting there. I've seen things. It doesn't matter what people put up for sale. Someone makes an offer on it. Right. All right. Well, again, thank you, Jason, for sending that in to us. We appreciate it. Joe, let's move on to our stories this week. Why don't you start things off for us? My story comes from The Conversation, and it's written by Priyanka Ranaday and two other professors at UMBC. And she is a PhD student in computer science and electrical engineering at UMBC. And she has an interesting article in here that is titled, Study Shows AI-Generated Fake Reports Can Fool Experts. And she starts off talking about the misinformation and having AI that generates fake news articles. But she has these things called transformers. These are AI constructs. These are uh, natural language processing, which is a field within artificial intelligence of devices that will take in some simple input and then generate something that looks like real language or a real news article. And she found out that she could configure these things to produce fake information that could fool cybersecurity experts and medical experts. She Hmm. tried to target this information towards two different fields of people. Here's an example of some of the text that this thing generated. Are you ready? Sure. 
APT33 is exploring physically disruptive cyber attacks on critical infrastructure. Attackers have injected a variety of vulnerabilities in web-based airline management interface. Once successful, attackers are able to intercept and extract sensitive data as well as gain unauthorized access to the CMS utility. That sounds like a real hmm. vulnerability report. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know, Star Trek The Next Generation techno babble, but that sounds like a security report. <laughs> right. And here's the thing. The security experts she tested were not able to tell the difference between this and a legitimate report. They would have spent hmm. time chasing this down. Here's one that targeted COVID research. Systemic and local side effects after BNT162B2 and CHADOX1 and COVID-19 vaccinations occur within 24 hours of receiving the second dose of both vaccines. Side effects include fever, headache, chest pain, abdominal pain after first dose. The second dose restores normal tissue oxygenization levels but may be accompanied by dyspnea's hypoxia and dyspnea. The results of this analysis are in a population-based cohort where we systematically collected blood samples and followed the process of mRNA importation, erythrocyte exchange, and host cell release post-vaccine. So, I mean... Hmm. I'm not a doctor, Dave. I don't, <laughs> this, this may or may <laughs> thank, not. And seem... thank goodness for that. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would be terrible. Uh, but <laughs> apparently medical experts could not determine whether this was a fake story or not. She goes on to talk about how, you know, ultimately the biggest issue is we're going to have to be vigilant about where our information comes from. We're going to have to have vetting our sources of this information. I've talked about this for news that people consume, but now we're talking about threat feeds and medical journals and things like that. We're mm -hmm. really going to have to vet these sources. We're going to have to have these trusted sources. We're not going to be able to just listen to whatever shows up on the internet. That Those days are, well, those days have been long gone for a while now, but this just demonstrates exactly how vulnerable we are. Yeah. I remember something similar to this in the past few years where someone was able to get some sort of security report into a peer-reviewed journal and published, even though it was it was word salad. Right. And it sounds like this is sort of an automated way of doing that. Yeah, I'll have to look that up. That was within the past two years or something. Somebody put out an AI-generated article that was just complete bunk, and it made it into one of these journals. It's a good lesson, though. For that to happen, there has to be failures along the way of the, the, the vetting of the story. So right, the, the whatever peer, peer review, review was going on was right. So hopefully that caused them to uh, review their review process. Yeah, I would hope so. I, I, but I wonder what this means, I mean, for, for the big picture. For me, you know, everything's provisional, right? Right, <laughs> so absolutely. So you, you come to every story with a bit of, of uh, healthy skepticism, but then, as you say, you have to have trusted sources, and nobody's perfect, but those trusted sources, you should be able to feel as though they're doing the work behind the scenes to, to not just be parroting whatever information is being fed to them, that there's some fact-checking going on behind the scenes. Yes. Now, there are some issues out there. Like recently, there was a uh, an article published in some journal. I can't remember what it was, but it was, and, and once again, I'm going just from my memory, but the gist of the article mm. was there was life on Mars. These people found fungus on Mars. I saw that. I said, wow, this is great. Let me look into this. Well, it turns out probably not. 
right? <laughs> but, you know, the person that publishes it has a history of publishing these kind of things. The journal in which he published it was one of these journals that you essentially pay to have your article published, which is a bad model, right? Yeah, publishing mill. Yeah, it goes out and publishes papers. And one of the big problems in the academic world is you have to publish every so often, right? With some, mm -hmm. some frequency. Publish or perish. Right. Publish or perish. Exactly. And if that means that you're going to take these kind of risks to produce this kind of stuff, I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's an issue. That's a big issue in, mm -hmm. in the field. Yeah. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. My story this week uh, comes from the folks at uh, Bleeping Computer. It's a story written by Lawrence Abrams. Uh, and, and let me set this up for you, Joe. So let's say that you are a uh, person who holds on to some cryptocurrency. All Let's right. say that I am, Dave. <laughs> and and you want to be safe with this cryptocurrency, so Absolutely. you keep your cryptocurrency in an offline hardware wallet. Right. Now, can you describe to our listeners what that is? What is a hardware wallet? So a hardware wallet is actually a piece of hardware. It, it can look just like a USB stick. And all it does is hold the keys in private so that your wallet is not accessible unless it's online, mm -hmm. unless it's plugged mm -hmm. in. Right. So the, I guess the notion is rather than having your keys to your cryptocurrency stored on your computer, right. which is a vulnerable place because your computer most of the time is, is always hosed up to the internet and therefore a target for, for uh, hackers, if you put them on this wallet, which is not always plugged into your system, uh, sitting in your desk drawer, you know, not yes. connected to anything, then that's a safer place to have your keys. That That's the notion behind this. Yes? That's right. It's an offline key management system, essentially. Right. Now, do the hardware wallets, do they generally have their own sort of password system on them as well? So if you were to lose it, someone wouldn't be able to just plug in and, and access your keys? I, I don't know how they work. I actually don't use a hardware wallet. I've never ah, never okay. actually done this. So I, I can't answer that question yet. Okay. Well, there is a popular uh, hardware wallet, and it's made by a company called Ledger. Mm -hmm. And it looks just like a USB key. So the folks who run uh, Ledger were the victims of a hack. And uh, some folks got into their marketing systems, and they were able to get basically a customer list, mm -hmm. right? So they were able to get a list of people who use these hardware keys. What happened next was some of the folks who use these hardware keys received replacement keys in the mail along with a letter, allegedly from the folks at Ledger, a nice letter from the CEO, again, allegedly, saying that uh, you may have noticed, you may have seen in the news that we were the victim of this hack. And uh, in response to that, we are sending you this free replacement unit which is more secure than the one you had. Um, and in order to stay safe, we're going to ask you to use this unit instead of the one that you had before. And it comes in a nice shrink-wrapped box. Everything looks great. Logo, it's all, it all looks legit. Looks like a real Ledger hardware wallet. Well, huh. Joe, you probably know where we're going with this. Yeah, I know exactly where this is going. <laughs> this is not a real Ledger device, right? Can I can It I is guess? not a real, yes, that is correct. Okay. It is not a real Ledger device. It just takes the keys and uploads them to some third party. Well, it's a little, it's actually a little sloppier than that. Really? Um, it looks like what these folks did was they took a real ledger device, they opened it up, and inside they put a USB flash drive. Okay. 
and they wired the flash drive in parallel to the USB connection of the actual ledger. Okay, because that's one of the features of USB is you can plug multiple devices in, right? Right. Through the right. same bus. So that essentially what they've done is they've made it so that now you get your ledger drive and you get a mounted, like a thumb drive. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So you get this ledger drive, this replacement ledger drive that you think came from ledger. You plug it into your system and it functions like a real ledger drive, but also along with it is this USB flash drive, which contains, wait for it, <laughs> malware. Malware, right. <laughs> right. Who'd have guessed? Right. And so this malware then, you know, scoops up all of your information, uh, like gets everything off of your ledger drive and your passwords and all those sorts of things and sends it back to the bad guys. Okay. The folks here over at Bleeping Computer in this article, they have some photos where they've taken this device apart and you can see how they put this flash drive inside. They, they comment that uh, kind of a, a shoddy uh, job here <laughs> was done quickly and, and, and messily, but from the outside, it looks just like a regular ledger drive. There's no way to know that this is uh, what's inside of there. Right. So... It's kind of fascinating because uh, there aren't very many giveaways. Now, to be fair, the letter that they sent had some of the typical bad grammar that we see so often with these sorts of things. Now, see, that's um, interesting, Dave, because these guys have gone through a lot of effort, a yeah. lot of effort to do this. And they didn't take the step to have a native English speaker proofread the letter for maybe 20 bucks. Yeah. Right? You yeah. can get those on hacker forums. You can get those services, and they didn't do that. It's just kind of mind-boggling because, as you right. say, this is an expensive attempt here. Right. They bought the actual device. They're shipping it out. They're, I mean, they've all modified sorts of each individual device right? that right. they've shipped out. They've gone through the list. They're looking for the high-value targets, right? How many of these are they going to send out? A hundred of them? Proofread the I'm, – I'm not trying to give these bad guys any advice – Right? You know what? <laughs> Don't do that. Your your translation software is just fine. Yeah, it's good. It's <laughs> full speed ahead. Yeah. Right. Um, so the folks at Ledger have put a notice on their website, of course, warning their customers to look out for this sort of thing. Um, I, I guess the broader advice here is never plug anything into your computer that you didn't specifically order, right? Right. <laughs> right. Even if it's a brand that you are already doing business with. Uh, and especially something that is this valuable that has to do with your own valuables. Right. Boy, before you plug in something like this, at the very least, reach out to them and say, hey, did you actually send me this? I can absolutely see how this works, Dave. If I'm a user of Ledger products and I, I follow the news and I see that they were breached and I receive this in the mail, this all makes sense. Yeah, it does. It absolutely adds up. Yeah, it, it yep. seems legit. Uh, yeah, uh, regrettably hats off to the, uh, <laughs> to the folks who, who right. tried to pull this off because it's, it's an impressive scam, but, uh, it's one you got to look out for. All right. Well, we will have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener we'll call R. Now, R sent us a story more than a catch of the day. So we don't really have a letter here, but this is about a phone call they received. Uh, hmm. They received a, a vishing scam and they attached a screenshot of how it came up on their caller ID. And it's just a V 
followed by a long string of numbers. And then below that, there's an 877 number to call back. And R says that it was odd, but it got my attention. I answered and was greeted by an automated voice system saying it was, quote, Sydney from AT&T DirecTV and that they were offering 50% off to existing customers. Now, putting aside the fact that I'm not a customer of DirecTV and the fact that real DirecTV would do this doesn't seem very realistic. But yeah, why would any any cable company or, or streamer provider call up existing customers and offer them 50% off? That's just... No, <laughs> no. The only thing they do is it's usually, it's always bad news, and it shows right. up as a surprise on your bill. <laughs> right? Yeah, your bill just goes up. It never Congratulations, goes we're charging you more for your <laughs> yes. for your bundle. Yeah. So, so R is right about that. It's very suspicious. <laughs> R says I was interested. The automated system then proceeded to ask for my account pin. I made up a random sequence of four numbers, and no surprise, but they accepted them. Throw hmm. in sixty to ninety seconds of hold time. The system came back and asked what I was paying. This is an automated system doing this. About 60 bucks, I said. The system replied, I see you're paying 60 bucks a month. (laughs) (laughs) We can reduce that to 30 bucks for two years, and it's contract free. So after saying that I was interested, another short hold, both times complete with realistic hold music and regular interruptions announcing my estimated wait times. This time, I got a person who told me that All I have to do is prepay for 10 months of service to get this deal. So $300 in my case. At this point, R says, I figured out what I wanted to know, which was what the scam was. So R was curious about this and wanted to figure this out. Then says, oh, so that's the scam. And the person quickly (laughs) terminates the call. So interesting, interesting work here, R. That's really cool. I'm kind of feeling left out, Dave. I don't get a lot of these calls. (laughs) And obviously, they're just looking to get the 300 bucks out of you or 10 times whatever you say they're just going. They're just going to try to charge your credit card, and you're supposed to be happy about it. Uh, right. And then your bill from Directv comes, and it hasn't gone down. Then you still owe Directv whatever you owe them. Right. Yeah. It's just these yeah. guys have made off with their your three hundred bucks. It's interesting to me that the whole front end of the call is automated, and that I is, don't know if they're using some kind of voice recognition system or something like that. But they're doing a lot of automated filtering before they hand you off to the real live person. Right. That's fascinating. All right. Well, thanks to uh, our listener, R, uh, freelance as a pirate, (laughs) (laughs) for sending that in to us. Uh, We would love to hear from you. You can send in your catch of the day to hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Matthew Gracie McMinn. He's from a company called Natasia, and uh, we were talking about security issues with streaming services. Here's my conversation with Matthew Gracie McMinn. I think probably the best place to start is understanding what's happening with streaming services at the moment. And if you're anything like me, you're probably getting increasingly annoyed by the uh, increasing number of monthly payments I'm having to make in order to watch all the TV shows I'm interested in. Yeah, there seems to be a <laughs> growing plethora of streaming yeah. services. Almost every week something new comes out. It's uh, uh, even like uh, local theatres and so forth have started their own streaming services now over here. So it's, it's starting to get... Uh, quite expansive. There's a lot of different streaming services out there, all of them with sort of monthly fees. And that, that sort of means that there's more and more 
accounts people are creating accounts on more and more different streaming services you know originally you know i just had netflix now i've got like netflix amazon prime disney plus you know it's growing there's a paramount plus out now uh things like marquee tv i'm sure if i I looked online i'd find dozens that i've never even heard of before right Uh, others i probably would have heard of as well so we're seeing more and more and there's been more and more interest in them particularly over the last year with lockdowns occurring all over the world people being stuck at home with not a huge amount else to do so suddenly there's a lot more people buying these accounts. There's been a, a sort of significant growth in the amount of people using these uh, services. More and more of these services, more people now have more of them because they've watched everything on, I think I've watched everything on Netflix. That's probably a, a bad thing to say. It's only been a year and there's certainly a lot on there. But, uh, <laughs> I probably should use my time more constructively, shouldn't I? Really? But there we are. Shouldn't we all? Shouldn't we all? Yes. <laughs> so yeah, so we, we've got more and more of these streaming services and these accounts have value. As I say, I was a criminal and I was able to take over some of these accounts. I could sell them on, give them away in order to build a sort of reputation on hacking forums to build up some sort of kudos and so forth that would allow me to sort of have a more of a reputation, a better reputation amongst these sort of hacker communities. But I could also sell them on. You know, these accounts have value. They have worth. People will pay money for them. People have decided they don't want to pay the seven ninety nine for a Netflix account, whatever it is, in whatever country you're in, and have decided, oh, what happens if I just uh, buy one straight out for two dollars, and I then own that account into perpetuity, sort of thing. So there's a lot of interest in taking over these accounts, and obviously, as we've had more and more people move online, more and more shops have gone online over the last year. Many of them smaller shops that previously didn't have much of an online presence. Generally speaking, we were seeing a shift towards e-commerce and things away from sort of uh, what we call in Britain sort of traditional high street shopping. You know, people were moving to buying things online rather than going to their local shops, sort of thing. And as we've seen that, we, we sort of see more and more data breaches. Smaller companies are coming online. They perhaps can't invest as much in security. They perhaps don't have the sort of technical knowledge needed to protect themselves so well. And so they have data breaches. Username and password credentials get dumped online, and these lists or these combo lists you can find them all over the hacking forums on the open web on the dark web they're they're not really a a very secretive you can find people listing accounts they have uh, sort of username and credential pairings on twitter even i was about to say it's an open secret it's not even a secret people are very open about this so we've got this sort of data that's been dumped out these username and password pairings and people tend to now reuse a lot of usernames and passwords and uh, i i myself have been guilty of this in the past actually mm. recently without even intending to be you know when you create i think it's now the average person has over 190 online accounts now Wow. Which is ridiculous. And it's very hard to think of individual passwords for all of them. So I have, before getting myself a password manager, reused passwords without even realizing it, which means that if one of those accounts get compromised, technically they've all been compromised. So these attackers mm. know that there's this vulnerability. Not many people are varying their passwords particularly well. And say you have Netflix and Disney Plus and Paramount Plus and HBO's offering and Marquee TV and all of these others, you'll probably decide, hey, what if I use the same username and password for all of them? So you go ahead and do that. And then the attacker takes over one of these accounts. They've actually got access to all of them. So what these attackers do is they're aware of this. They get these combo lists from the open and dark web and they go, well, I've got 2 million credential pairings here. Let's try them all against Netflix and see which ones work. And the success rate can be phenomenally low for those sort of things. You know, these sort of attacks against streaming services, these success rates are phenomenally low for these mass attacks. They'll throw all 2 million credential pairings into there and say maybe 1,000, 2,000 will stick. They'll be able to get access to them, but they can then sell these accounts for a couple of dollars each. That's a sizable profit for them. So that's really where the the current situation is sort of sitting and where these credentials are are coming from. They're generally breaches of of a sort of unrelated sort of system 
to the streaming services has leaked these credentials online and these attackers are taking them, the, this information, and using this data as a weapon against other organizations. You know, I, I, I can't help wondering, is, is this an area where people generally consider these sorts of passwords to be a, a lower priority than, say, their banking passwords? If someone gets my Netflix password and Netflix still works for me, not, you know, it's, there's not a whole lot of pressure on me in terms of, uh, you know, feeling as though there's a whole lot of, at risk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, p- people, first of all, it is might be hard to detect. You may not be aware. You might start seeing some old things. Maybe a new profile pops up on there um, or your algorithm changes. Right. 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 All of a sudden, I'm interested in Russian language documentaries. Yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realize you were a Russian speaker. (laughs) (laughs) Neither did I. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah, you know, you'd see these some changes. And Netflix do a pretty good job of trying to detect, say, logins from unusual locations and so forth. But you probably don't really care so much until, say, the attacker decides, hey, I'm going to change the password and lock you out of the account entirely. Mm-hmm. And if an attacker is feeling like they're getting their use out of it without doing that, they probably don't want to give the game away and so forth. So you, you right. may get this sort of quiet pilfering of things. And a lot of people do share their password with their family. So I, I share it with my family who live with me. They, they all know the password. I haven't traditionally made it perhaps hugely complex. I've uh, massively increased the complexity uh, sort of about six, seven months ago. And then logged everyone in with it and sort of of left those particular devices and said, if you need another device in, let me know and I'll put the password in sort of thing. But historically, and again, I was guilty of this, you you kept the password fairly simple. So you don't have to keep logging your kids in. So you don't have to keep logging, logging the rest of your family or your household in. And some people, of course, as we know from uh, recent uh, developments with Netflix, were sharing them cross-household as well. So there's more of an impetus to keep the password simpler, which makes it easier to guess anyway. Yeah, and also, I mean, there's 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 a user interface issue here as well, because especially if you're if you're doing this interaction right on your TV, or if you have an Apple TV or whatever, you know, whatever. Chances are you're trying to use some kind of a remote control, and boy, that is a big old pain in the butt. <laughs> it certainly is when you uh, uh, look at particularly long passwords, like you're saying. Yeah, it's uh, it, it is a pain in the butt, and one typo and you're back to the start sort of thing. So it's not in the right. It's not really an ideal solution. 2FA helps. Uh, you know, a lot of people talk about 2FA, and there are 2FA, uh, MFA bypass methodologies, but it, it does offer an extra layer of protection. It's a lot harder for an attacker to get in if there's MFA on there. You know, you can see when someone's logged in, but not all of these services offer MFA historically. And generally speaking, people don't like to use MFA because it slows things down. And you know, you sit down in front of the TV, you, like you're saying, you know, you, you get the remote out, you put your username, password in, you log in, and then, oh, I've got to go upstairs to get my phone and uh, click OK. And then I get upstairs and it's timed out. So I've got to go down and try again. So, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a hassle there. So people have historically been a bit reluctant to do it. And organizations have been reluctant to inflict that on their customers in many ways as well. Is there a possibility that we could be heading towards some sort of collaborative approach where you know, we have sort of, you know, one login to rule them all? Yeah, I mean, that would be an option. And there are certainly organizations who essentially you can link your accounts together and access all of them from a single a single source of truth, a, a sort of what one account of power almost. The problem there, of course, is if you do lose access to that account, those accounts are much more valuable to attackers. So mm. if they take over, say you've linked all of your uh your Netflix, your Disney Plus, your HBO, Paramount Plus and everything all, all together under one account. 
and you've got that one account. An attacker, that account is then much more valuable to an attacker. It's sort of putting all your eggs in one basket almost. You know, it's great if you can then protect and guard that basket and it perhaps makes things easier. But if an attacker does get to that basket, they've got all the eggs. What about the providers themselves? I mean, I've read uh, stories recently where Netflix seems to be uh, putting a little more effort into cracking down on these things. For Netflix, they are now sort of trying to crack down on people who are sharing their passwords cross households, which will mm-hmm. hopefully try to crack down on this. You know, so if someone from Indonesia or somewhere it logs into my account, it's probably going to look a bit suspicious because they may think, "Hey, as far as we know, Matt, Matt's in the UK. He's not. He's not actually uh, in Indonesia. So did he share the password, or was his account taken over?" So it, it offers a bit of extra protection there, and I'm sure also uh, may well help their bottom line in the long run, stopping that sort of sharing. But Part of the problem is that bad password hygiene sort of thing, that, that reuse of credentials is bad and is something that uh, individually, I think we should be taking steps to try and make sure we're not doing that. You know, use uh, MFA, use uh, password manager with so we can more easily handle 190, 200 different accounts on an individual level. But there is more of an impetus as well on organizations to do more to protect their customers. And a large part of that isn't just to Obviously, there's a a sort of, we need to protect our customers. You know, it's bad for our reputation. It's bad for our customers if their accounts get taken over. But there's also the cost of these takeovers, a sort of secondary impact. So let's say you lose 100,000 accounts and it takes a customer support staff five minutes on the phone to repatriate that account to the actual owner. At 100,000 times five minutes, I dread to think how many hours of work that is to get all of those back. And that's Mm. time and ultimately money that's been not being spent elsewhere. Right. What are your recommendations there for for folks to best sort of, you know, strike that balance between security, but also practical ease of use? How do you suggest folks dial that in? If you're watching on on computers, obviously, password managers are, are a useful tool on televisions and so forth. Personally, I like to use MFA as much as possible, but uh, obviously being in the industry I am, I'm very security conscious. I'm more worried about security than I am about ease of use quite often. It is a tricky one. I would say that the key thing is don't reuse credentials. These credential stuffing attacks are so easy to perform. There's dozens of tools out there and all all an attacker has to do is literally uh, sort of download a tool off GitHub or anywhere else, also online, the hacker forums and so forth are full of them download that and then they up, they use something called a config file essentially it's sort of a this is what the website this is what the target looks like and then they just upload a list of username and passwords into it and they hit run and off it goes and it just fires off all of those password username and password combinations over and over and over and again as individuals what we can do to take steps to protect ourselves there is make sure we're not reusing those usernames and passwords so if we lose one account somewhere through no fault of our own say a company's being breached or whatever we've not lost multiple accounts across uh, all of our other 190, 189 services, whatever it is. And if we can turn on MFA, great. I'd highly encourage people to do that. Another method to do is to, to look for those telltale signs. And like you said, you know, if you suddenly start seeing Russian language documentaries on there and start thinking, hey, what could have caused these to come up? That sort of, I hate to, to quote Harry Potter here, but constant vigilance, that awareness of... <laughs> um, Hey, this looks a bit odd. If you were in your house and uh, all the lights suddenly went off, you might think, hey, there's a power cut. But if it's, you know, you start noticing lights in rooms you're not in turning on, you might think, hmm, maybe I should investigate that. It's the same thing with Netflix uh, or Paramount Plus or HBO, you know, any of these streaming services. If you start seeing suspicious behavior on your account, 
change your password, contact customer services, look at login, currently logged in accounts. Many websites now, Facebook, for instance, offer, hey, where are you currently logged in? And have a look at, at it and see if it adds up to where you currently are. Providing security to individuals, to our customers as organizations, you know, it's not just dependence on the individual and it's not just dependence on the organization. It's very much a sort of team effort, a team sport here to make sure we're protecting ourselves. All right, Joe, what do you think? Dave, I, w- I will start off by saying I agree with Matthew that I am also irritated by the number of streaming services that I have. <laughs> yes. uh, I guess I'm spending what used to be my gas money on them. But uh, <laughs> one of the key things that Matthew says, and it's something I say all the time, these accounts have value. Everything you have online has value. Don't right. think it doesn't. One of the biggest objections that, that I deal with is hackers are not interested in me. They are interested in you. And here's one of the things they're interested in because they can sell access to your Netflix account for a couple of bucks. And Matthew uh, uses an example here of somebody getting 2,000 hits out of a 2 million record database. And he says, well, that's a very low percentage, but it's still 2,000 hits. I can turn around and sell each one of these things for five bucks. That's 10 grand. Not a bad payday. That's not a bad payday. And it doesn't take long for this automated script to go through and try all 2 million of those records. And I can do whatever I want while that's going on, right? I'm not sitting there trying this. It's a script. And I I let my computer make me $10,000. The hardest part is actually selling the credentials and laundering the money. Finding Mm -hmm. the credentials is easy. It's all automated. The UI on these uh, streaming services is a big deal. Hearing a long 20-character password is really awful, you know, especially since I use uppercase, lowercase numbers and symbols in my things. But what I've taken to doing for my streaming services is changing the settings on those accounts. So I still use a very long password, but I only use letters so that it's easier for me to enter it. You know, there's all the math about how complex your password has to be, but, you, you know, you understand the risk model. And really the, what they have to be in order to protect yourself from these kind of attacks is they just have to be unique. They don't have to be terribly, terribly complex. You know, a 20-character password made up of all lowercase letters is going to take a long time to crack, and nobody's going to do that. Uh, and if yeah. it's unique, then you don't really need to worry about it showing up in another password breach, and that's how you can secure your account. Netflix doesn't really care if your credentials get stolen, right? But they do care if you share your credentials with your with your family member. And I think the reason <laughs> I think the reason they care about that is because that's actually something that happens more frequently than people's accounts getting broken into. And that's costing them revenue, and I understand that. But the good news is that these things look the same from Netflix's perspective. Matthew talks about Netflix going and trying to stop you from sharing your Netflix account with your family members who don't live with you, but at the same point in time they're going to have to stop people from stealing your Netflix account. Right. It's, it's just right. kind of going to be part and parcel. Use MFA if the service offers it. That's a great idea. I think that's a lot easier than having a long, complex password for, for all these things. It's a lot easier than switching between the numbers and the symbols and the uppercase and lowercase letters. I still yeah. say use the, use the complex and unique password, maybe limit the character space of it, and make it a little bit longer to account for the difficulty. And look for the telltale signs that your account has been compromised. Can you go to that uh, where am I logged in page on on the service provider's website? Can you look at what I'm, well, you know, continue watching for Joe on Netflix is what I see all the time, right? And right. Uh, <laughs> is that... Have your, have your interests suddenly changed? Right. Have my interests suddenly changed? <laughs> look at all this anime. Right. No. How do, yeah. I don't watch this. <laughs> all these 
All these foreign language movies that right. I, I never was interested in before. What's up with that? Yes. Keep an eye out on that. And when, when you see that, go ahead and just change your password, and that should fix the person who's uh, – that should get the person locked out of your account. Matthew does talk about somebody locking you out of your account. I, I don't know what the workflow is for that aside from a phone call to the provider, but if they change your password, now you have to go through the process of calling them and – Right, nobody right. likes Probably verifying them. your credit card or something like that. Right, Some nobody other. likes calling these companies that just like billing you, and that's really <laughs> their business model. They just want to bill right. you. That's right. All right. Well, our thanks to Matthew Gracie McMinn for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.